0: Hello and welcome to this special episode of Bad Gays, a podcast all about evil and complicated gay people from history. My name's Hugh Lemmy and joining me today is the writer and filmmaker Juliet Jakes. As well as publishing two books, Juliet also writes short fiction, as well as journalism on literature, film, art, music, politics, gender, sexuality and football. She was also the founder and co-host of the fantastic culture and politics podcast Sweet 212. Hi Juliet. Hey. So um Juliet who are we discussing on today's episode Today we're talking
1: about somebody who was widely known as Colonel Victor Barker who was most famous for marrying a woman in Brighton in Sussex in England in 1923 and then being sent to prison for perjury 6 years later uh for lying about basically for lying about the sex assigned at birth and marrying a woman while legally being female Barker was also a member of the British armed forces um, where he was a nurse, ambulance driver and horse trainer, but never actually a colonel. Um, Barker was also an actor, car salesman, film extra, kennelman, petty thief, petty thief and a member of the National Fascisti.
0: Yeah. Um, so normally, Ben, as our resident historian, likes to sort of interject at some point to discuss the language that we use, but he's not here today. So I'm going to sort of play play the role of Ben. Um, but normally, yeah, he discusses how identities are sort of historically contingent, and they don't always map directly onto contemporary identities. So when we're discussing, uh, in the past, we've discussed a lot of gay men, uh, we sort of, we refer to them as gay men as a as a provocation. But obviously, the concept of being a gay man doesn't really exist before the sort of early 20th century, and the concept of being a homosexual it doesn't actually make sense really necessarily to talk about those men as homosexual men in the Middle Ages, for example. Um But it's sort of a useful thought experiment for discussing their lives. Um, So does that apply within a sort of similar historical discourse around trans people?
1: Uh, Absolutely. I would say even, even more so. The first terminology for what we would now call trans people really starts to get set at the beginning of the 20th century. Famously, the German sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld publishes a book called The Transvestites, the erotic drive to cross-dress in 1910. And you know, he uses this for a word transvestite to cover quite a broad range of what we'd now think of as transgender or gender-variant behaviour. The subject of today's show, Victor Barker, is particularly complicated because Barker emerges as a public figure in the interwar period at a time when... The at a time when there's a sort of emergence of a women's public and private sphere that happens in the wake of the First World War uh, which also brings about an emergence of lesbian culture and literature mm-hmm. uh, but also at this time um, the first sort of transmasculine and transsexual men in Britain um, become prominent um, so Barker a bit like the protagonist of Radcliffe hall's famous 1928 novel the well of loneliness stephen gordon uh barker can be claimed as transgender or lesbian but wasn't either um unlike stephen gordon though barker also didn't call didn't refer to himself as an invert uh which was the popular well relatively popular sexological term at the time which tended to refer to people who were physically one sex but psychologically the other gender it was a kind of a point between what we'd now think of as kind of sexual identity and gender
0: diversity interesting yeah so um but i think today for sort of the ease of the narrative and discussing we'll largely be referring to him as a trans a trans man except from when we want to perhaps dive deeper into that sort of, for example, the relation with Radcliffe Hall and those discussions about inversion and perversion, but in general, we will use that framework? Yeah,
1: I think that makes sense. Uh, Certainly Barker lived as a man pretty much throughout their adult life, um, including into retirement, which complicates the narrative that Barker might have just been presenting as male for socioeconomic reasons. Um, And Barker never really... Discussed in great detail like why why he lived as a man or what this felt like. Um something that's quite interesting is that Barker's life was coterminous with the first sex reassignment surgeries in Britain, which were performed by a surgeon called Dr. Lennox Broster at Charing Cross Hospital. Uh and most notably in 1936, um uh, an athlete formerly known as Mary Weston um, had surgery and lived as Mark Weston. Uh, and Weston made the news, not covered in a sort of sensationalistic way, as was the case with quite a lot of post-war trans women. Uh, but Barker was aware of this possibility, but displayed no interest in it, so we can't really label him transsexual. Um, <clears throat> regarding pronouns, I'm going to follow the lead of Rose Collis, who published a book called Colonel Barker's Monstrous Regiment in 2001. So I'm going to use he when we're talking about Victor Barker Or any of the other male pseudonyms that he adopted And she when we refer to Barker before Adopting that identity um, When when she was known by the birth name Of Lilius Irma Valerie
0: Barker Or Valerie Barker more commonly And um, as you sort of said At the top of the programme It seems like a sort of fascinating life You were saying like a nurse, ambulance driver, car salesman Kennelman, thief um, Tinker Tailor, soldier spy <laughs> So, um, yeah, maybe you could sort of go a bit more into um, his life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, Linnaeus Irma
1: Valerie Barker was born in St. Clement in Jersey in 1895 to Thomas Barker, who was an architect from Brighton, and Lilius Hill, who was a distant relative of the Baden-Powell family, which, as I'm sure you know, included the founder of the Boy Scout movement, Robert Baden-Powell.
0: This is where Ben would say, English people, normal normal psychosexual development. <laughs> and then the English upper classes as well. I
1: mean, you know, that's, that's a whole different world, especially in the late Victorian period where the aristocracy have been given Basically, the freedom to do whatever they want in return for staying out of politics to a yeah. reasonable extent, and you get things like the Cleveland Street scandal in eighteen eighty nine, where um, various very very aristocratic people are having uh, indecent um, affairs with telegraph boys, yeah. and um, and it's a huge scandal that goes all the way up to the uh, the royal family. I mean, that will have to wait for uh, for another episode. I think. I but, think you um,
0: mentioned it in the Oscar Wilde one, but there is yeah, there is talk of maybe featuring the Cleveland Street scandal in it. A future future series
1: Well to come back to the Barker family They moved back to England in 1899 uh, And they settled in a um, a Small town called Bramley Which is near Guildford uh, And then they moved to another town uh, in Surrey uh, Called Milford
0: And for, um, maybe for Our non-UK listeners um, Surrey is extremely leafy it's full of poshos right (laughs) yes that's pretty much it um i actually
1: i am from surrey um i am from the slightly more sort of petty bourgeois parts of surrey sort of commuter towns i mean after the second world war in particular there's a, a line of commuter towns through surrey that kind of run between the more leafy villages but certainly the um the villages in surrey are notoriously upper middle class or outright upper class um and indeed if i tell people that i'm from surrey I often get a response of people saying oh sorry um <laughs> which yeah i mean listeners are welcome to write in with recordings um i mean to give you an idea of the kind of place milford was uh, and is uh, famous people from the town include the uh Conservative peer and secretary for health in the Thatcher government, Virginia Bottomley. Um,
0: and a man called Sir James Gault, who was the military assistant to General Dwight Eisenhower during World War Two. So we're talking like sort of, yeah, bourgeois establishment, like the Tory party in Church of England. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so as a child,
1: uh, Valerie Barker really loved dogs, horses and sports. Uh, Her father was disappointed with his son, Thomas Leslie, and so he taught his daughter fencing, cricket and boxing. She went to two schools for young ladies and then uh, finished at a convent school near Brussels. She would dress in male clothing wherever she could and had her formal coming out ball at the age of 19. Obviously, around about this time, um, the First World War is taking place. Now, this had a very important effect on the place of women in British society, uh, starting as it did just at the point when the suffragette movement was reaching its height. Uh, a lot of men were on the Western Front, so new employment opportunities opened up for women at home. Uh, but also, a lot of women were encouraged to go to France and Belgium to support the troops as nurses and ambulance drivers. And did those women? Did women get actively involved in the fighting? Not openly. I mean, there wasn't a women's regiment. You know, there's. There's a history of women disguising themselves as men in order to join the army. Uh, Quite an interesting example is Phoebe Hessel, who served the British Empire uh, and the colonial project in the West Indies and Gibraltar and was wounded at the Battle of Fontenoy in 1745. Again, we can't say if this was for socio-economic reasons, which is often assumed when men on death were found to be female-bodied in the 18th and 19th centuries uh, or because they were gender dysphoric, but Certainly a lot of women felt invigorated by the close proximity to the conflict that came with being an ambulance driver. Um there's a short story by Radcliffe Hall called Miss Ogilvy Finds Herself that explores this. So Barker worked as a nurse, ambulance driver and horse trainer, uh which entitled her dress in khaki breeches, a tunic, cap and riding boots. Back in the UK, uh, she was working with horses on an estate in Kent, where she met Harold Arkell Smith, an Australian who'd been promoted from general to lieutenant during the war uh, and had three medals. They married in April 1918. It lasted for just six weeks when Harold moved back to Australia, but they never formally divorced. So in August that year, using her married name, um, Valerie Smith enrolled in the new Women's Royal Air Force the WRAF was considered to have the smartest uniform of all the women's services and it wasn't a feminine uniform at all. The women liked to refer to each other with male nicknames and I think this was quite an exciting environment for Barker to be in. Mm. Uh, Barker worked as a driver um, until the unit was disbanded after the armistice and then went to work in a tea shop in Warminster which is a small town in Wiltshire in southwest England and I would guess it's quite similar to the places in Surrey where where Barker lived, but I I don't know the area quite so well.
0: It's such a such a radical change in British society. Like twenty years, you're going from this sort of like repressed Victorian, you know, women in corsets and um, laced up to you know, in a war zone in uh, jodhpurs and um, riding crops or whatever. You know, like for 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 a lot of um a lot of women, that must have been like incredibly liberating
1: yeah absolutely i mean you do you do after the first world war get this emergence of a whole women's sphere so you think about you get like particularly in more upper class circles you get the bloomsbury group virginia Woolf, Vita to satville west um sylvia townsend warner and um and others and of course macliff hall is on the edges of that
0: um and of course um a lot of uh imbalance in terms of the ratio of men to women of a sort of Uh, eligible dating age i guess because so many young men died
1: yeah absolutely um so yeah a lot more women in work and a very different yeah sort of romantic scenario and also the um the kind of austerity that follows the Mm. first world war has an impact on clothing coats you know people aren't going to be wearing these corsets and layers of petticoats and things because um you know it's not economically viable anymore Um, so anyway, uh, in, uh, in Warminster, Barker meets another Australian called Ernest Pierce Crouch, who was also separated from his partner. Uh, so Ernest got offered a job with the Paris office of the times and Barker went there with him, uh, living with him for a year and dressing in masculine clothing most of the time, but not presenting as a man just yet. Although Valerie was dressing in masculine clothing most of the time, she wasn't presenting as a man just yet and became a mother. Their son Tony was born in february nineteen twenty, and became a complicated presence in Barker's life. When the Times made Ernest redundant, they moved back to England to Hook, another small town in Surrey, uh, this time on the fringes of London. They had a daughter in june nineteen twenty one, but neither child was ever registered. The Pierce Crouches became tenant farmers at an estate outside Littlehampton in West Sussex, intending to run it as a guest house. Valerie wore men's clothing to do farm work, including a collar and tie. Ernest drank heavily and sometimes became violent. He hospitalised her for several days with an assault in 1923 and she threatened legal action. They split up and Valerie agreed that Ernest could take their daughter.
0: So she leaves the daughter with the husband and what about the son? Uh, well, um, Barker takes
1: Tony to the next phase of his life. At this point, Barker makes the clear change, selling off some of the farm's assets and going to live at the Grand Hotel in Brighton, which was one of the first outside London to have lifts and fire exits, where he'd made a reservation under the name of Sir Victor Barker.
0: And the Grand Hotel still exists, right? It's a famous one that was bombed by the IRA during in, a Tory party conference. In
1: 1984, in yeah. their attempt to assassinate Margaret Thatcher, that's right. Um they nearly got her. <laughs> well, they called her after and they said, uh, remember, you have to be lucky every single day. You We only have to be lucky once, yeah. which you may have seen on a motivational poster recently <laughs> attributed to Margaret Thatcher. It's absolutely bizarre. <laughs> um, so Barger did quite a lot of preparation for this new life. Uh, later on, he said that, for weeks I had trained myself, even to the extent of deepening my voice. A continuous chain of cigarettes helped to coarsen my voice. I had also tried to roughen the skin of my face and had started shaving to help. So Barker had adopted this new identity and started living as a man at the Grand Hotel and began a relationship with a woman called Elfrida Harwood, who had worked in The Family Chemist in Littlehampton. So Barker bought a few suits, shirts and ties and left his three-year-old son Tony to be looked after at another hotel in Brighton, although Barker never revealed which hotel or who was looking after him. Elfrida arrived at the Grand Hotel on his second day and Barker explained later that "'I told Miss Harwood that I was not really what she thought I was. I told her that I was a man who'd been injured in the war, that I was really a man acting as a woman for family reasons.' I made some excuse about it being my mother's wish and she believed it.
0: So this is complicated that when when he gets together with Elfrida, who knew him before he started to transition, he explains that actually before he was in disguise. Yeah, basically the,
1: um, the excuse he gives for having frequently gone to the Harwood family chemist as Mrs. Pierce Crouch was that he'd... Uh, his mother had wanted a girl and had used the death of his father to impose this wish upon him, so had like forced him to dress as a woman.
0: Pretty Shakespearean, <laughs>
1: isn't it? Um, but you know, he also won the family over by saying he'd been a colonel in the British Army and served with the British Expeditionary Force in France and had been awarded the Distinguished Service Order. Um, the son, meanwhile, uh, Tony, was explained as being with the first wife who'd now died. And the daughter uh, had belonged to Ernest Pierce Crouch and uh, his first wife. Um Barker did concede though that I think Elfrida had some doubt as to my being a baronet. I explained that I dropped the title while living on my farm, but assumed it again in the hope that it might help me get a job. I don't think she swallowed this tale though she never said much, so Elfrida would later claim that she didn't know Barker was a woman until the trial and answered that Victor couldn't have normal relations because of an abdominal wound received during the war. But they'd spent a night together, so Elfrida's parents insisted they got married. Seeing a knighted military man like Sir Victor Barker as a good catch, even though they didn't actually simply like or trust him. So to get a marriage license, Barker had to produce both of their birth certificates. We don't know how he did this, but he did make a sworn affidavit that He believeth that there is no impediment of any kindred or alliance or of any other lawful cause or any suit commenced in any ecclesiastical court to bar or hinder the proceeding of the said matrimony according to the tenor of such licence. So Victor and Elfrida were married on the 14th of November 1923 at St Peter's, the parish church of Brighton. The ceremony was performed by the curate, as the vicar had collapsed and died while running for a bus earlier that morning. Sorry. Yeah, we should. should funny, we?
0: <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing has an air of fast to it. Oh, but, So at this point, um, as well as uh, according to the law, um, it being an unlawful marriage because um, according to the law that they're both women, um, he's also still married at this point, right? Yeah. So it's bigamy.
1: Yeah. Although that never comes
0: up. Mm. Um, and indeed
1: the um. None of these issues come up for for a while. Barker goes and gets involved with the Brighton Repertory Company, acting under the name of Ivor Gauntlet, until his voice breaks down under the strain of constantly singing in a low register. Ivor Gauntlet,
0: Gauntlet. Ivor Gauntlet's amazing, oh, such a good isn't name, it?
1: Yeah. <laughs> it? sounds sort of like an innuendo, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, Ivor uh, Gauntlet, too. <laughs> he opened an antique and second-hand furniture shop in Andover, in. Hampshire, which is famous for the Andover workhouse scandal, which for people interested in what Britain's going to look like under Boris Johnson is probably worth uh, revisiting. Uh, he also bought a Webley pistol and got a license, sang in the Andover choir and joined his local cricket club. He run up a lot of debts as Ivor Gauntlet though and you know, had to kind of run away, took up various jobs as a farm manager, kennel manager and manual labourer at Brickworks usually for a couple of months at a time uh he got chicken pox in the last job uh Elfrida nursed him back to health but by the end of this she'd had enough went back to her parents in Littlehampton and went back to working in
0: the chemist he must have been an amazing character um like the all these jobs and the ability to like skip between these things and maintain you know these like lies about his past and stuff and and yet still you know he's hardly laying low he's he's um he's in the choir and he's joined the local cricket club like he's like really trying to fit into that sort of society
1: well there's that confidence that comes with being a member of the British upper middle classes yeah. or the English upper middle classes I should say um, you know if Barker had been born male then you know probably would have got very very high up in in yeah. British society absolutely um, so Alfred left him Alfred left him and he makes another big life change and listeners might so far have been thinking why why is this person down as a as somebody to be featured on the uh, the bad gaze podcast but um barker takes a very different turn at this point um he moves to soho and apparently got a letter addressed to a different Colonel Barker in 1926 and opened it out of curiosity um, to find an invitation to join the National Fascisti, which was an offshoot of the British Fascists with less than 400 members, which had been sent by the group's leader, Colonel Henry Ripon Seymour. Um, Now, of course, the most famous far-right group of this period, the British Union of Fascists, doesn't yet exist. Um, Oswald Mosley hasn't. Left, I don't think he's even left the Labour Party yet, actually.
0: But um, yeah, we did we featured him in the Nicky Crane episode. I think he he did go Conservative, Labour, and then he had a new party, and yeah, then he formed and, the, the BUF.
1: Yeah. yeah, and that doesn't happen till the '30s. So the, these are very early British fascist groups that are obviously inspired by the Italian
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, fascists. Um, so I don't know how well versed Barker was with this ideology beforehand, because. Barker replied with a very very glib uh two words which was just why not <laughs> um but Barker went in quite deep um he became the living secretary of the group living in the flat above their offices in Hogarth road and I was court um he often wore his war medals which actually belonged to Ernest Pierce Crouch and gave fencing and boxing lessons to the younger members who never picked up on him being a son female at birth uh, Barker later reminisced that I used to go out with the boys to Hyde Park and we had many rows with the Reds so I don't know how much Barker is a genuinely committed fascist but is certainly an anti-communist and that's not really particularly surprising given his aristocratic yeah. background
0: and this is around the time of the general strike, right? yes, that's right And yeah, that would have been earlier yeah. that
1: year, I think
0: I mean, from his descriptions it sounds kind of like adventurism you know, like upper middle class adventurism as much as like ideological anti Semitism, for example.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well I mean the Italian fascists hadn't taken that aggressively anti Semitic turn yet. That only happens with the race laws that come in mm-hmm. in the late thirties when they're aligning themselves with um with the Nazis. Um and that's not to say the Italian fascists weren't anti Semitic of course, but um you know, that wasn't a key plank of their ideology. At this point it's primarily, I think, a aggressively anti left movement. Yeah but of course like all good fringe far-right groups they're very good at fighting amongst themselves so on the 8th of march 1927 uh, a small group of fascisti mostly from the croydon branch uh, who didn't like seymour's leadership burst into the offices so seymour grabbed his sword took a pistol from the drawer under the desk and threatened to shoot one of the men So the police came along and took possession of this pistol, and the next day Seymour appeared at the West London Police Court and pled guilty to common assault and possessing a firearm. However, the magistrate said the second plea should be withdrawn when it was clarified that the gun belonged to Colonel Victor Barker. It was a Webley pistol, but not the same one as on Barker's certificate from Andover, so he was then charged with uttering a forged firearm certificate. At the trial in July, Barker turned up with his eyes swathed, and his counsel explained that temporary blindness owing so to war wounds had flared up um, a little bit like Prince Andrew being unable to sweat for <laughs> uh, those who followed uh, his recent interview um, but anyway, Barker was found not guilty and discharged.
0: His firearm certificate was cancelled, and he promptly left the national fascisti i mean the um uh, probably shouldn't laugh at the Prince Henry thing, but it does. Like, it's this same sort of aspect of sort of British culture, which is like you, you know, if you fr- if you're um, if you're from that background, you know, uh, an upper class background, and you you appear and you can have that sort of um, you can get away with anything.
1: That's of hoods part, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, absolutely, you can. Yeah. Um, and not much has changed, really. Yeah.
0: So anyway, what happens, what happens after the um, this trial?
1: Well, not long after Barker's brother dies and Barker inherits some money, which he uses to rent an expensive flat in Mayfair with a new girlfriend who is publicly known as a new Mrs. Barker and hosts dinners for the survivor of the Battle of Mons in August 1914, which was a key battle in establishing the lines of the Western Front. Uh, these became a regular event, and Barker began to feel he could run a restaurant, so he leased one near Charing Cross Road, calling it the Mascot Cafe. Uh, a publication called The Daily Sketch got wind of this, and it also had an anonymous tip-off that Barker was really a woman, so they sent a reporter who'd met Barker before, but couldn't find any fault with his manhood in a couple of um, couple of meetings. So... Barker ran out of money, had to give up the cafe, moved to a cheaper flat and took a job as a receptionist at the Regent Palace Hotel. So a bankruptcy notice was addressed to Barker at the Mascot Cafe, but he'd left and hadn't gone back, so never received it. So he didn't know he was meant to attend a public hearing on the 24th of January 1929, so he got arrested at the hotel. Uh, He was taken to Brixton Prison and medically examined, told to put his clothes back on and transferred to Holloway Women's Prison. Uh, this became quite a big story. A week later, an article about him appeared in The Times, followed by The Daily Herald, which is now, of course, The Sun, and the Evening News. Uh, and the War Office and the Director of Public Prosecutions exchanged files on Barker. Barker's lawyers said that a person being arrested as a man was being held in a women's prison and said this was unlawful. They applied in the court, um, that all info in connection with the bankruptcy had been supplied, and thus the offence had been purged, and Barker's immediate release was ordered. Um, however, Holloway insists that no woman would leave dress as a man, even though they had no woman's clothing that would fit. Um, Barker was, was quite a big gentleman by this point uh, was, was an absolute unit <laughs> um, so a special purchase was made the next day Barker was given a coat skirt, blouse, silk stockings and a large hat uh, there was a big crowd of reporters waiting for him but he was at least allowed the dignity of leaving via the staff entrance at the back um, Ernest Pierce Crouch refused to give a statement but Alfreda Harwood talked to the police and the press and their respective accounts were published over the weekend of 10th of March 1929 It's one of the few times that Barker discussed why he presented as a man. He said, A man seems to have a better and easier time. There is, I am certain, more opportunity for a man in the world than a woman. That is why I became a man. I believe that, similarly placed, I would do much the same again. I do not mean that I would deliberately do those things which I now realise were wrong, but they were done in foolishness and not with any wrong intent.
0: Why do you think he gave that as his reasons? Because that seems at odds with a lot of odds with a lot of a way that trans people um, were describing their their reasons for transitioning. Offer,
1: yeah. um, I mean, at this time, sex reassignment surgery is not yet an option. Transsexual identities don't quite exist yet in Germany. They're working on the very very first surgeries at exactly this point. There were no laws against cross-dressing per se even under the um, criminal law amendment act of 1885 which punished gross indecency between adult men private Mm -hmm. or public Uh, so there was definitely no laws against women dressing as men Um, some male to female cross-dressers were charged under the criminal law amendment act and under other laws around like breach of the peace and things like that Uh, but nonetheless you know there was still quite a big social stigma against female to male cross-dressing uh you know we can't say for certain that barker was giving this reason out of expediency it may well be the case that barker just thought for kind of social or socio-economic reasons it was easier and better to navigate the world as a man um but the doesn't seem to have worked out very well for him (laughs) no exactly the persistence of this uh, gender presentation, mm. including into retirement, um, suggests that it did kind of cut deeper than that, but, um, but we can never know that, of, of course. course. The director of public prosecutions was considering whether they could charge Barker under the Army Act for impersonating an officer and wearing medals that hadn't been awarded to him, but. Instead, they settled for willful and corrupt perjury in an affidavit re his bankruptcy, in which affidavit she swore that she was truly named Leslie Ivor Victor Gauntlet Bly Barker. Um, as we're going to find out, Barker had many names. <laughs> so, wisely or not, uh, Barker turned up for the hearing in female clothing, including a big hat and feather boa to hide his face. Barker's lawyer made the obvious point that there was no law against a woman dressing as a man. And in the affidavit, Barker had used the name by which she had been known for some time, and thus that was the name given, which was allowed in English law, and the magistrate agreed. The prosecution then asked the magistrate to hear evidence and commit the defendant under the Perjury Act of 1911, as Barker had, quote, "...knowingly and willingly caused a false statement to be entered in a register of marriage." The doctor from Brixton Prison and Elfrida were called as witnesses. A copy of the marriage certificate was produced. Barker's lawyer attempted the argument that, as two persons of the same sex could not marry, there has been no marriage and therefore no offence. The magistrate was having absolutely none of this. Uh, The perjury in an affidavit charge was dropped, but Barker was formally charged with a marriage register offence, granted £50 bail, and with the trial set for the 24th of April at the criminal court. And then there's the old Bailey. So the judge here was a man called Sir Ernest Wilde, who was a Conservative MP, and he'd supported a failed attempt in 1921 to extend the Criminal Law Amendment Act to female persons, punishing any act of gross indecency between them. Uh, and he was also opposed to female jurors, especially in cases where the defendants were
0: homosexual. That's interesting, because after, immediately after the First World War, I think we covered this in the Bosey episode, there was a sort of... Um, renewed scare around lesbianism um, amongst the British upper classes um, that was sort of linked to national security as well with Lord Kitchener and yeah we go into a Boese affair because he was publishing some awful anti-Semitic screeds at the time about his conspiracy of lesbians and Jews Wow
1: well I mean obviously at this time you've also got the um, the obscenity trial for Radcliffe Hall's Well of Loneliness which I think we're going to come back to uh, but for now, we'll uh, we'll stick with the Barker trial. There was a big queue for the public gallery and Barker arrived in male attire, but was summoned as Lilius Irma Valerie Arkell Smith. The prosecutor admitted that Barker had been prosecuted in the same court as a man two years earlier and added that if she wanted to marry another woman, she could have gone through a ceremony in a registry office. There was no justification for her abusing the church to go through this ceremony. Your Lordship will appreciate how important it is that marriage registers should not be falsified. That is an aspect of the case which is of considerable gravity. So, despite admitting that she first met Barker as Mrs. Pierce Crouch, Elfrida claimed that she didn't know Barker was a woman until she saw it in the papers. Barker's lawyer concentrated on Barker's need to earn a male wage, and that having taken that step, she had to commit to it or lose the employment. He didn't defend the point about a false statement being entered in the register of marriage. Uh, The next day, on sentencing, Recorder Wilde commented, Without expressing any view as to the truth or falsity of Miss Hayward's evidence, I am assuming in your favour that Miss Hayward must have known, before the alleged marriage, that you were a woman. He concluded, I have considered and carefully pondered on everything which can be said in your favour, and the result at which I have arrived is this. You are an unprincipled, mendacious and unscrupulous adventuress." You have, in the case before me, profaned the house of God, you have outraged the decencies of nature, and you have broken the law of man. You have falsified a marriage register and set an evil example which, were you to go unpunished, others might follow. So grave in the eye of the law is the offence which you have committed that the maximum penalty for it is seven years penal servitude. In all the circumstances of this case, showing all the leniency that I can, I pass on you a sentence of nine months' imprisonment in the 2nd Division. So Barker was taken back to Holloway Prison, where it was found that they didn't have a uniform large enough to fit, uh, as Barker now weighed 16 stone and 8 pounds, or 105 kilograms. It took a fortnight for the uniform to be ready, and Barker spent most of that in the prison hospital. In the prison itself, he was very upset by the sanitation, the food, and particularly by the non-recognition of class. The required work was tedious, but Barker was regarded as of good behaviour and released on the 15th of December, 1929.
0: So this was all happening at a time of quite a sort of profound change in sort of manners and sexual mores around um, sexuality and gender at the time, um, sort of coterminous with Hirschfeld in uh, in Germany. And in the UK, that was the sort of there was a similar sort of protest uh, process going on of like a sort of um, more public discussion of these things. Like how was how was the what was the reaction to the trial and specifically the um, the issue of uh, his gender?
1: Well, there are some quite surprising reactions. We've mentioned Radcliffe Hall a couple of times, who had published the Well of Loneliness, all about this invert Stephen Gordon, who is a assigned female at birth but goes by male pronouns and lives as a man pretty much all the time. Um, Barker personally cross-dressed, but never really tried to pass as a man. And, uh, quite surprisingly, perhaps, said, I would like to see Colonel Barker drawn and quartered, a mad pervert of the most desi- undesirable type. So Radcliffe Hall considers himself an invert and Barker a pervert.
0: Um. And what's the difference between that and the sort of, um, sexology of the, of the era?
1: Well, the invert is medically. Justified, okay. um, You know, British, like German, sexology arises in opposition to the Victorian period's criminalisation of what we'd now think of as like LGBT plus behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, in Britain, obviously, the Oscar Wilde trial is a really crystallising moment after the Criminal Law Amendment Act. But the emergence of female to male people during the interwar period and female to male cross-dressers presents it with a real challenge. The main sexologist in Britain in this period is Havelock Ellis, who is worth looking up just to see pictures of his beard, which is (laughs) genuinely extraordinary. Um, And Havelock Ellis is actually quite an old man by this point. He's, I think in his sixties or maybe even into his seventies. But he's referenced in the well of loneliness and he uh, wrote a foreword to it um, and indeed defended working court and he had been working on this theory of inversion that we mentioned earlier in the show um this idea that you could be physically one gender and psychologically mm-hmm. the other um and they were still working on separating this you know homosexuality and t- t- sexual diversity and gender variance
0: yeah and this is like sort of s- still uh, lingering in, I guess, the popular consciousness about um, about uh, transgender people, which is that uh, this um, idea of being born in the wrong body, yeah, which is like only starting to be challenged for some people. In yeah, and that was a way of
1: obviously medicalizing this behaviour and mm. obviously saying, "Well, I can't help it, so you have to just kind of accept it rather than criminalise it." Uh, and I think that's something of what Radcliffe Hall is driving towards here.
0: Yeah, uh, there's there's sort of. Um, also analogies with the way that people are discussing, still discuss homosexuality in terms of being born this way. And um, yeah, this like innate aspect, but then they have this other um, uh, invert, well, inverse is a complicated word. Um, They have this other aspect. So as well as having inverts, there are perverts yeah i which think, is what radcliffe hall's referring to
1: yeah and you know this is a classic kind of vanity of small differences thing i think mm. um you know a way of like separating off people you don't want to be associated with and the history of trans rights movements is full of this kind of boundary setting yeah um between you know yourself who's acceptable and someone else who we do slightly further than you who isn't
0: yeah in english society at the time um in sort of interwar period, I know, I know amongst, um, uh, homosexual men, there was an, a strong element of class, uh, of class dynamics and, cl- uh, towards the idea of inversion and perversion, which also lingered on. I watched this great documentary on, uh, BFI, uh, about, um, gay men, uh, gay men's social life in Soho in the 1930s. And these men, it was made in the eighties, the documentary. And these men are talking about it and saying that they'd have these social lives where in, um, the Lily Pond, which was the, um, the lion's tea house in Piccadilly, where these men would uh, all socialize as gay men together, but they would never have sex with each other because they all regarded themselves as inverts and, like, in modern parlance, like, bottoms. Mm. And then – and it was taboo to have sex with one of your friends in this. And then afterwards, you'd go down when closing time or whatever, you'd go to the park and you'd pick up a working-class man, like, a worker or a soldier – and pay him, and so there became this like dynamic in the law between the invert who is medically sick, and then the pervert who is of loose morals and can mm. be converted. And and the idea of the legislation around um vice is to keep the two apart. And then later, the medicalization of the idea of the invert is the justification for uh, decriminalisation of homosexuality. Sorry, a bit of a diversion, but is there a similar thing there in terms of class? You know, is is because Radcliffe Hall is is extremely upper class right yeah they all are
1: um i mean if you read the well of loneliness um stephen gordon discovers their invert identity through reading the very beautiful hardback copies of havelock ellis and other sexological works in his father's study and realizes that he's behaving in a way that is socially unacceptable for a woman because of the way he rides a horse (laughs) Um, uh so you know a lot of these these people are quite upper class and partly because lesbianism and female to male cross-dressing doesn't really get criminalized in the same way yeah um i don't think there's that kind of class mix again of course like even at this point it's still hard for women to socialize away from the company of men i mean sure. that's changing but it's 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 not not there yet, so the sort of circles in which you can have these kind of autonomous women's spheres, I think, are more limited. And obviously places limits limits on this transgender behaviour as well.
0: Yeah. And this is happening also at the same time as the publication of Lady Chastley's Lover. That's right. Uh, which I think was 1928, and he was released in 1929. Yeah. Is, yeah. Um, and I was just reading, uh, reading up on it, and it says that... Um, I mean uh, Lady Chatterley's Love was originally of course published uh, privately um, because it was obscene and it wasn't actually um, uh, there was an obscenity trial around it in the 1960s right um, which was this sort of part of this changing idea of like, liberalizing society in England in the 60s there's the Philip Larkin poem Sex Started Rather Late For Me between the end of the Chatterley ban and the Beatles first LP <laughs> so that's like 1960 something um, but Lawrence actually refers to um, to Victor Barker in his defence in one of his pam- pamphlets published at the time. Is that right?
1: Uh, yeah, it is. The um, pamphlet called "Apropos of Lady Chatley's Lover," published in 1929, and cites Elfrida's belief that she was married normally and happily to a real husband as an example of the levels of ignorance around sex
0: in England at the time. So, so in some ways, the um, the the ignorance around it and the sort of, um, may, maybe be, uh, facilitated, like his, his, his ability to, um, uh, pass, if we use those words.
1: Yeah. In, in and air I wonder, quotes. yes, I think that's definitely true.
0: Uh, particularly, yeah, the
1: ignorance around lesbianism and female to male behavior. Um, I mean, we talked about class a bit as well. And if you look in the Victorian period, When you find stories about male to female crossdressers, it's people who've been arrested and put on trial. Mm. When you find stories about female to male crossdressing, it's labourers who've died and then been found on death to be female bodied. Um, so that's quite interesting. But I think the class thing helps here. Again, I mean, we've talked about this already, but you know, Barker's kind of chutzpah um and confidence just you know this is a class-based confidence that i think you know allows him to try these things and just pull them off and becomes more confident with each move
0: yeah um it's also quite interesting in some of the court documents that you have been reading from this echoing uh this horrible echo down the ages of sort of transphobia today were to do with dishonesty and the idea mm-hmm. that his gender presentation was uh, somehow uh, an attempt to defraud other people. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And again, that's a trope that goes back to the Victorian period, the famous trial of um, of Bolton and Park, who actually themselves might make quite an interesting episode The um, cross-dressers who were tried in 1871. Well, the name's Fanny and Stella. Fanny and Stella, that's yeah. right. Um, so yeah, there's absolutely this deception trope. But it's never sort of said what Barker's ends for deceiving are. Are they to make money? Are they to have a more satisfying career? Are they to as the subtext of this is here in this case I think to trick an unsuspecting heterosexual woman into lesbianism. Um And this again is is a feature with the Victorian cases involving male to female cross-dressers in that the courts are so horrified by the thing that they're prosecuting they can't even name it. So they can't have a yeah. A frank and intelligent
0: discussion about the the issue at hand. It would be interesting to know what Elfrida actually knew and thought about yeah. the situation, because as you said, like yeah, it's this idea that um, he was sort of tricking her into lesbianism. But from the life story, it seems pretty unlikely. Like she knew she knew Victor Barker before he transitioned, and. They were they were married, and he has this story, of course, about a war wound which stops them having sex, for example. But um, is D. H. Lawrence right when he says that that it's imp- that that shows a profound le- level of um, ignorance around sex, or is um, is that D. H. Lawrence refusing to believe that perhaps Elfrida um, uh, was fine with it?
1: Well, we can never know. Yeah, but um, my suspicion is the latter. <laughs> yeah, but, um, probably yours too. <laughs>
0: Um, so he was released from prison in uh, 1929. It must have been a really hard experience. There's another echo, of course, there, Danny, the ages to today of um, of transgender people's experiences uh, being uh, assigned to the wrong prison.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there was absolutely no sympathy at this point for that. No political movement to try and change that. Like, you know, it's the bare minimum that we have now. Uh, and yeah, of course, it was was a very Difficult experience for all of the reasons that I outlined earlier, not just with gender, but also class and.
0: Um, yeah, he sounds like the, his complaints about like class differences not being respected in prison. That's not a very sympathetic. No,
1: it's not, is it? Um, no. Um,
0: um, um, so when he was released, did he? Uh, did he sort of? Uh, I don't know. Could go go back to alfreda did he did transition no he continued
1: to live as a man um he still had this annuity that he got from his brother's death and inheritance which he spent on sending his son to boarding school uh but he adopted a new identity at this point uh calling himself john hill he worked at a furniture shop on tottenham court road and then became a car salesman but kept getting recognized by customers particularly women who read about the trials in the newspapers, which of course at this point are starting to carry more photographs. Uh, He did a little bit of work as a film extra at Elstree Studios, um, but he drifts into a slightly different line of work in 1932. He goes to Shanklin, which is a seaside resort on the Isle of Wight, and he works as an assistant to a fortune teller and also to a diver who jumped off the end of a pier in an asbestos suit which was soaked in petrol and set alight (laughs) um and then he ended up working as a kennelman in uh, a village called henfield which is uh, near horsham in west sussex another very very middle class area um he found a forgotten purse in the village's phone box and then got charged as john hill for theft um his legal name as Valerie Arkell Smith was given in court uh, and the lawyer explained his behaviour by saying that he was worried about not being found to be a man. And the jury was actually sympathetic to this this time and found him not guilty. So and John Hill went and worked as an assistant chef in Cornwall and Devon um, and as a manservant to a South African millionaire, uh, worked as a servant to someone called Mrs. Adrian Scott, and um received a lot of letters uh to the charity that mrs scott ran uh with contributions um and decided not to steal from the charity contributions but kept taking took some 1 pound notes from mrs scott's handbag and um got arrested again um remanded for a week and taken back to the hospital ward at holloway prison um fine 20 shillings in order to pay back the five pounds within a month so you know you see Barker trying to stay close to the upper classes here by working for them rather than with them clearly it was quite hard to um to let go of that class background but then something really interesting happens which is you know this puts Victor Barker back in the news even though he's convicted as John Hill and this uh piques the interest of an impresario in Blackpool called Luke Gannon. Now Blackpool again for listeners who are maybe not so familiar was the biggest working class seaside resort in Britain during the interwar period.
0: Yeah it's the sort of British version of Coney Island or something.
1: Yeah I mean maybe you're more familiar with it I don't know I've never been.
0: Oh yeah um, yeah. I grew up not so far from Blackpool we used to go and see the Blackpool Illuminations which are these lights that have been going I think for like 100 100- since Victorian times, where you string the lights over, and it's, um, today it's quite a sad place because, um, there's a huge amount of poverty, and it's sort of used as, um, a place where local authorities can send, um, people they don't want in their local authority to, to go and live there basically, um, on the dole in these former guest houses, and now convert to houses of multiple occupancy. There's a lot of, um, Uh, deprivation and um, not much care given by the states of people who live there. But at the time, um, up until the sort of 1950s and 60s, it was a huge seaside resort for people from the working class industrial heartlands of um, Manchester, Liverpool, places like that. So um, yeah, it's where you went on your one week's holiday every year if you're a working class person.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, one of the, um, attractions of Blackpool was these freak shows, for want of a better word, really, these cabinets of curiosities. And Luke Gannon had a vacancy because his previous star attraction had been the Reverend Harold Davidson, uh, who was widely known as the Rector of Stiffkey, uh, who was a Church of England priest who, sorry, <laughs> Was Re-
0: Can you repeat that? He was widely known as what? The rector of
1: Steve <laughs> <King>. <laughs> Uh He was. Uh, so he was a Church of England priest who was defrocked in 1932 after a public scandal when he was convicted of immorality by a church court. You know, he protested this um, but to raise money for his reinstatement campaign, he exhibited himself in a barrel on Blackpool <laughs> Seafront. Um, and you know, he wasn't let back into the church so you know, he had to pursue this showman career, which earned a lot of notoriety, but no money. And um, he kept performing in other sideshows, and uh, he died after being attacked by a lion uh, in whose cage he was appearing as a kind of lion tamer. Uh, this was in uh, Skegness, Um <laughs> So, I mean, that's, that's quite to a death story. by a
0: lion in Skagness. Yeah, it's, um,
1: <laughs> it's pretty grim. On the 28th of July, 1937, Davidson was, uh, giving a speech in an act billed as Daniel in a Modern Lion's Den. Uh, lots of clergy would go and watch this and the, the two lions, Freddie and Toto, were sitting quietly and then, um, Somebody said that in scarcely credible terms, the little clergyman from Norfolk and the lion acted out the classical Christian martyrdom to the full. <laughs> <laughs> it's an extraordinary story. Very, very sad, really. Oh, yeah. But, um, so Davidson was, was no longer the star attraction. So Gannon asked Barker, uh, to, um, to be part of a show on blackpool seafront uh, calling barker the most famous intersexual character of our time uh gannon arranged a set on the golden mile the main tourist route through central blackpool which let viewers pay tuppence to look at these two beds separated by a belisha beacon and traffic lights permanently on red with barker in one bed and his wife in the other um so weird with these headlines saying i am taking the step for The Woman I Love on a Strange Honeymoon. Uh, and there were long queues. I mean, by all account, the show was actually incredibly boring, but it's almost like an interesting precursor of reality television. Mm. Things like Big Brother on Channel 4 in the early 2000s, which were basically sold on the premise that this was almost certainly going to be the show where you got to see people have unsimulated sex
0: yeah. On TV for
1: the first time ever
0: Which it and probably was right I, I think
1: know. it was But you know people sat through no end of boredom Beforehand in the hope of getting to
0: But it's interesting as happened. well because um, Again you have this sort of very stark class, class Difference at the time and that was also Sort of uh, evident in people's Attitude towards sex To the extent that um, Clearly um, have. Colonel Barker filling the spot of the um, the director of Stiff Key (laughs) was clearly like, um, it was seen as like a um, naughty or something. Like it has this like sexual aspect to it that was obviously thrilling. And for working class entertainment at the time was a lot of that was built, uh, especially at the seaside, was built around, you know, innuendo and like, you know, quite like extremely um, not clumsy innuendo, good innuendo, but you know, like. Rude, yeah. yeah. My little st- stick of Blackpool rock and all that sort of stuff. Um, so so clearly, like, in his second life away from the upper classes, then you can see that actually um, the perception around, around his gender identity being, like, somehow um, curious for sexual reasons is there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, of course, you know, how Davidson was there for sexual reasons yeah. as well, having been... Defrocked. So yeah, that's definitely um, definitely a huge part of the story. Yeah, you know, kind of dancing around the gender and sexual aspects of, of the story. But, you know, those definitely being part of the
0: mm. pull. It, It's funny as well because in the previous seasons we've talked quite a lot about the relationship between anthropology, um, colonialism and uh, homosexuality. And, and again, you see it here mirrored in this discussion of gender um, and especially transgender people, which is the the freak show quote unquote um, has these like roots in the in this sort of the same colonial uh, idea of the zoo and the presentation of like uh, strange things and uh, uh, gender being part of that and obviously race as well you know at the same time
1: yeah I mean human zoos were still a thing at this point I'm not sure how much in Britain but certainly in parts of
0: continental Europe um, so this is within that same sort of um mindset or discourse as well, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's sad,
0: it's real sad. I mean, like, um not a trustworthy man, you wouldn't leave him with the keys to your house, but um deserves better than than being in a freak show.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean it's hard to know exactly what Barker's attitudes to this were. Like Barker claimed that he was going to publish an autobiography round about this time, but the book never appeared, and Obviously, the Second World War breaks out less than, well, two years later, um, and Barker joins the Home Guard, or Dad's Army, as it's commonly known, under the name of Geoffrey Norton. There's another name change. Um, Barker's son dies during the the war, Um, died in the daylight bombing of German garrisons in France after the D-Day invasion, and Barker never really... Recovered from this, um, he moves to uh, a place called Kessingland in Suffolk in 1948 with uh, his current partner, Ava. um, And they keep themselves to themselves. Um, Barker gets ill um, in 1956, uh, is initially put in the Wens Ward and then moved to the women's, then to a private room. um, Although he wasn't asked to pay for a private room. um, And... The existence of the National Health Service by this point, you know, allows Barker or Geoffrey Norton to live for longer, but he still needs money, and so arranges for his life story to be sold to the Empire News and Chronicle, and it ran in February to April 1956. Uh, Barker said there was nothing perverted in the life he'd chosen. He said. He had suffered no tendency to become a man. I have undergone no physical operation to turn me from woman into man, and physically I am as I started out in life to be one hundred per cent woman. But so long as I have lived but so long have I lived as a man that I have come to think as one, behave as one, and be accepted as one. He said this is all done for the sake of his son. I ask for no pity or sympathy. You may feel that I do not deserve it anyway, and maybe you are right so he was suffering from Parkinson's disease and was in and out of hospital over the next few years. Um, Ava died in 1958 and he actually survived her, but he, um, he died at the age of 64 in February, 1960 and was buried in the grounds of the parish church in Suffolk in an unmarked grave.
0: Well, thanks so much for that story. Um, fascinating, like a fascinating life, at uh, this intersection of these like, this massively changing country and it's attitudes towards sex and gender and the development of um, new sex logical theories. Um, personally, I, I have a soft spot for him. Um, not the fascism. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in general sort of, um, yeah, like, I don't know, like um, what was the, 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 the line they, the they described him in court as a, Oh, where they call call him an unprincipled,
1: mendacious, and unscrupulous adventurer. Yeah, that's
0: that's a quite quite a good epitaph.
1: Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the um, the line about Morrissey in his court case, where the judge calls him deviant, truculous, and unreliable, <laughs> <laughs> which he took rather personally.
0: Well, there's uh, one for another series. Well, God, absolutely. Um, um, but you know, um, yes, committed uh, a number of crimes, uh, but mainly small scale um didn't doesn't seem to have defrauded his his life partners his sexual partners as far as we can tell, tell no um and was i say this all the time on this this show but was you know trying to make it work in a difficult you know unsympathetic world um do you think um yeah do you think that's a fair Fair summation of it, or do you think that there's more going on?
1: I think that's reasonable. I mean, I do think that if it wasn't for the fascism, then Barker would be a kind of a, a hero to contemporary trans culture. And of course
0: that's... You know. Yeah. It's interesting as well, though, because within um, a lot of our shows, we've dealt with a lot of fascists. Um, and there is a thread within um, the ideology of a gay male life this thread of masculinism um which which has a tendency towards it so you can really see that there's like a lot of complicity between those gay men and the fascism whereas it seems here with um with colonel victor barker that he stumbled in to fascism there doesn't seem to be much linked to the rest of his life other than um you know Riding crops and uniforms is like a thing, but um, it yeah, I, I can't see much like ideological continuation of any sort of fascist. No, tendencies. I don't think Barker was a you know sincerely
1: committed far rightist, yeah. more um, related to like the class
0: at the time, you know, like there's a yeah, lot of absolutely. I mean, I think fascists. was probably
1: strongly anti communist, yeah, um, but you know, politics didn't really. Seemed to be a big part of his life outside of that episode, which I think yeah Barker saw joining the National Fascisti as a chance to explore this sort of hyper masculinism i mean this is you know this isn't particularly rare amongst kind of trans individuals, particularly in more oppressive times than the ones we live in mm-hmm. now, of people kind of hyper conforming to one or the other of the binary gender, gender. identity mm-hmm. um as a way of managing it. Um, so I mean I you know that that episode aside I find Barker reasonably sympathetic um, you know as much as I can find somebody this upper class sympathetic
0: I find yeah I do find him a much more sympathetic character than um, Radcliffe Hall who's obviously a a, a different story but um, there seems to be within like Radcliffe Hall and the Well of Loneliness a sort of yeah this like appeal to this sort of like wet sympathy like oh you know it's sad and i wish i wasn't but i am whereas victor barker's just like having my pistol um i'm gonna go ride a horse and oh my word i mean i
1: would read if they were to exist i would read victor barker's memoirs over the well of loneliness yeah any day of the week um far more dynamic and interesting i think if not necessarily more sympathetic
0: um, well, thanks very much for joining us today. Um, it's been yeah a really interesting uh, episode. Um, if people want to know more about about Colonel Victor Barker, where could they find out more information?
1: Well, a lot of uh, what we've given today is taken from one of my favourite websites, which is the Gender Variants Who's Who run by Zagria. Um So the website for that is sagria z a g r i a dot blogspot dot com. Uh, so I really recommend looking that up. There's a four part series on Victor Barker's life Um, there's also a longer book uh, which we mentioned earlier Rose Collis's Colonel Barker's Monstrous Regiment A Tale of Female Husbandry which is a very interesting story of Barker that also draws in other cases of sort of female to male people um, across the world where there's documented evidence of it for the wider context I also recommend Alison Aram's book Her Husband Was a Woman Women's Gender Crossing in Modern British Popular Culture and that also brings the media coverage of Barker into the story quite a lot.
0: Oh, great. Um, and I'll put details of all that in the show notes, so if anyone wants to find out more, they can. Um, well, thanks very much for joining us for this special episode. Um, my name's Hugh Lemmy, and I've been here with um, the writer and filmmaker Juliet Jakes.